Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 21. Coming up on this show, we've got the lost civilization of the Arcadians, the Apollo Mission Guardians, and the geomantic power of burying a dead horse in your driveway. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. I'd imagine that would be quite geomantic, apparently. Yeah, you know how in Australia as well and in England, there's been dead cats found in the foundations of buildings. Like if they yes. tear down an old house, there like might be... Like a mummified a, cat in there. Like a, a monkey's paw or <laughs> a camel's hoof in the wall. Well, this goes back to geomantic practices I'm going to be talking about on the show today. There's a new book from Nigel Pennick I'm going to be going into. Oh, I like called, his stuff. Yeah, Creating Places of Power geomancing, builders' rights, and the electoral astrology and the hermetic tradition. Oh, gosh, so <laughs> so boring. It sounds so boring. <laughs> but it's not, obviously, but otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. It's full of horses being buried under your front lawn to give your house a special supernatural power. Can't you just get like a rabbit's foot or something? Why does it have to be an entire horse? It sounds like it's a lot of effort. Well, it's interesting if you trace the practice through history, it actually started with the builders being entombed inside the building. You mean from like ancient Egyptian times or? Well, yeah, just going back. At, well, it's it's not even that old. You can go back and find buildings from like the 17th century or the maybe even the 18th century where say a foundation is falling over or a wall's falling over while they're building. They're right. Hey, Jim's been working with us for a while. He's getting on in a few years. Why don't we ask him if we can bury him alive inside the foundations and Jim will be like, oh, well, I guess it's for the good of the project. No, and so they start, not. they put Jim in the foundations of the wall and they pave him in. I don't know if they give him like a drink of something to put him to sleep, but they basically pave him in and then the wall mir- miraculously is steady and the entire foundation is built on old Jim, who there's various theories of why they did this. One of the ideas is that it ensouls whatever's being built. So if it's a house or a castle or a bridge or whatever, it now has the soul of Jim <laughs> looking after it. It's giving it the energy of his soul. How superstitiously barbaric though. I mean, I, I get the concept, but really like to put it just an old person into it to well, imbue it with it, an energy? It's definitely uh, pre-Christian in its tradition. Right. But when Christianity came in, it, I mean, it really didn't get rid of it entirely. In fact, they embraced it in a way because, of course, in many churches across Europe, you have the relics of saints. And it's oh, the, that's a good point. Yeah, it's and the in same, Asia as well. Yeah, it's the same idea. They have some kind of residual energy. They have some kind of spiritual power that protects the church, that gives the church some kind of extra energy. Uh, and the Christians were quite crafty with it because instead of just having a whole body, like here's a saint, they're buried in the church and now we're good. The church is protected. They would take like, oh, let's take one of his fingers and we'll take it to a church over in Greece and we'll put it in there and then that church will be protected. And then we'll take one of his toes and we'll take it over to Ireland and we'll put it in a church there. So they figured out a way to maximize the amount of spiritual power you could get out of one <laughs> one dead saint. <laughs> so I come back to my question beforehand. Why do you have to put an entire horse into your driveway? Horses used to have this designation of special power. So it was basically over the years, over the centuries, it... Not, I don't want to use the word regressed, but say our ancient ancestors, they would always use a human soul to ensoul a new construction. Um, and then their, their, I guess, the generation that followed were like, nah, that's a bit, 
that's a bit harsh. Let's just use an animal. So then you've got horses and cats and dogs. I see. But then later on, like today, you might dig up a, like an old foundation in England somewhere. And uh, yeah, you might still find like cats paws and stuff like that. But now you'll find coins in some places yes, in England. Change you'll find coins, artifacts. coins under the foundation and the coin is a representation of the soul. So it's still the same idea that you're ensouling the construction of the object of the place uh, and it's actually giving it a mind, giving it an entity. So I'm going to be going into that uh, later on in the plus extension, including some really fascinating stuff with how uh, in Roman times, when the Romans went to war, say if they besieged a city, they had special units that were trained to lure out the spirit of the city they were besieging. To remove its protective yeah. capabilities? Yeah. That's kind of so cool. So they could take over the city. So it's like a kind of, it's a mancy of some kind, it's right? Like, it's like, it's almost like they're getting rid of the egregore that protects the people they're attacking. It's fascinating. fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. They, have, they have specialists that would do this. There may be something to it. It reminds me of urban legends that I've heard over the years of Sydney Harbour Bridge, for example. I mean, you know, we lived in Sydney for a long time. There's stories that you hear. And one was that in the during the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, two things happened. One, a guy fell off. Um, and I, I don't know if he survived, but I, I know that I, apparently one passed away, right? Because, mm. and I've done this on the show, there was a story of there being a diver near the Sydney Harbour Bridge that when other divers were down there, like they would see this guy that would be hanging around <laughs> and he'd be swimming underwater, but he's not a diver. Like he's a guy wearing old clothes. What the hell? Which the idea is like it's some type of representation or like a weird uh, stone tape recreation yeah. of the guy that fell off. But the other story I've heard is that if you're driving along the Sydney Harbour Bridge late at night and there's no other cars around, that all of a sudden a man will suddenly materialise before you and you have to slam on the brakes because this guy's obviously on the road and you have to avoid him, but some people drive through him and obviously they pull over and there's mm -hmm. no one there. The story goes, it's because there was a guy that fell into the building of the foundations and, I don't know, it was concrete or something and suffocated from it. Yeah. I don't know how it was. I mean, these are all accidents though. Yeah, so these this are is deliberate. This, well, is, this is deliberately doing this to capture the soul of an individual. Well, this is what I'm saying though. These are accidents, but it still has the same effect of capturing the soul of that person in that structure. Yeah, well, it's interesting to ask that question, does it? Does it actually have the same effect? The one that comes to mind for me is um, in terms of accidents was the, is it the Brooklyn Bridge? There's, I know there's a bunch of bridges in New York, but there's the one where they had to dig the foundation so deep that it became uh, pressurized at a certain depth. They had to pressurize it. Mm -hmm. And when the workers came back up, once they got to a certain depth, they were all dying. Well, they're getting the bends because they had the bends. Oh wow! And that's how they, I think that's how they eventually the invention of the hyperbaric chamber came about because because these workers needed to be depressurized before they came to the surface. I think it's the Brooklyn Bridge. And what are there a bunch of stories of people seeing workers that are ghostly form? No, no. Okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> See, the thing about it is though is that it kind of fits in with uh, with bridges in particular, and that's why I wonder if you mentioned that because. Bridges are like crossings. They're a crossing, a kind of a representation of, you know, spiritual phenomena. And you hear it. You know, there's all these reports of ghosts appearing at crossings because it's like a metaphorical crossing into another realm. Right. And so if you trap a soul there, it's kind of already being amplified because of the superstition attached to it. So it's kind of, you know, a weird kind of combination. But I'm looking forward to getting into that later on in the show. But for the start of this show, I was actually flicking through a book that arrived in the studio recently called The Moon's Galactic History, A Look at the Moon's Extraterrestrial Past and Its connections to Earth. This is by Constance Victoria Briggs, 
And she's actually done a really fantastic job with pulling together all these different kind of stories and elements about the moon and the unusual nature about it and just how it might influence uh, the relationship between possible extraterrestrials on the moon and humanity here on Earth and us going into space and why perhaps we've been prevented from going into space on many occasions, but also saved. It's almost like there's a guardianship that takes place. And essentially, she starts off the book by describing, you know, there's there's cultures. You have ancient traditional cultures uh, that have oral traditions describing a time before there was a moon. Yeah, I, I love this idea that it's, these stories somehow exist. They've been passed down the time before through, the moon. Yeah, through oral traditions. And they were known as the Arcadians. So she references, you know, a number of philosophers, respected philosophers from ancient Greek times. Uh, she's got multitudes of them uh, describing this these stories that they had heard. So it's describing an even older culture. This older culture, you know, referring to a time before there was a moon. And in fact, there was a time that the brightest thing in the night sky was Venus. That's all there was. And if you look through some of these oral traditions, you find that that is the case. It's like what was described as being the brightest thing in the night sky was simply Venus. There was no reference to the moon up until around about 12,000 years ago. Now, that 12,000 years ago, Mark, kind of is fascinating because it coincides with a lot of other research that's been conducted by people like uh, Graham Hancock, for example. Uh, Philip Coppins has looked into this. Uh, you've got sites all around the world that kind of correspond to some type of event happening around 12,000 years ago that was cataclysmic and changed our culture. It changed... So the, uh, the Younger Dryas The Younger Dryas period. The, thing, the impact theory. Exactly. And you have these sites around the world that seem to correlate with this. You've got sites in Turkey, which kind of correlate with this. You've got sites in South America that seem to correlate with it. In fact, um, there was some research that was conducted at the Gateway of the Sun. This is a site that's in South America. And at this particular site... Researchers have looked at the inscriptions that are on this particular gateway, and it literally looks like it's just a large piece of stone which is formed in like into a gateway kind of fashion. Uh, and you simply walk through; it doesn't take you anywhere. But when you look at the inscriptions, the inscriptions seem to describe, uh, according to some researchers, the arrival of the moon, the arrival of the moon around twelve, roughly twelve thousand years ago. And not just that, though the changes that it caused to Earth. And apparently, if you look at the timings, the timing of the Earth, the year, was roughly 290 days. And when the moon arrived, it went to, you know, 365 mm. days that we have now. Does this fall in line with Velikovsky's idea of Venus and the uh, astronomical upheaval? That's, it's funny you should say that because it's not mentioned in the book, but I do agree with you. I think that has that kind of element attached to it, that there are these uh, cosmic events that were taking place around this time. Yeah, remember when uh, the, the content I was covering a few weeks ago where the theory was that Saturn was the original sun for the Earth, mm -hmm. that Saturn was our original star. I think in my memory of reading through that stuff, that was suggested that in that upheaval, when we were eventually captured by, this is in their idea, that we're captured by Sol, our sun that we have now, in that process of chaos, that's when we, we got the moon. That was their idea. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it expands out a little bit from that. And I guess the theme of this book is highlighting that there is some type of uh, extraterrestrial, advanced extraterrestrial civilization, which is associated with the moon or was associated with the moon, or still is perhaps in some circumstances. 
And that is what caused the arrival of the moon. Now, this is where obviously, you know, when you look at, and I, I recommend that you do pick up the book and read it for yourself because there's obviously many, 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 many pages that will explain this in a far more, uh, I guess, concise way than I will. But ultimately, it comes down to this idea that there are some, and if you look at different cultures, you kind of find connections between, um, you know, oral traditions, these theories, these these ideas that there was a advanced species of some kind that was extraterrestrial and they brought the moon to earth. They brought it here to either do one of maybe a multitude of things, but let's say three main things. One was to seed humanity or to somehow influence humanity to cause a change to take place. Uh, and that could have been the stabilization of the planet. And that's why we have this idea that, you know, the the reporting of the time of the year going from 290 days to 365 days happened because the arrival of this satellite, this artificial satellite caused a stabilization of the geometry of the planet. So why does it have to be extraterrestrials that built the moon? I mean, if it's artificial, why couldn't it be an ancient civilization here? That built the moon. Okay, that's a good point as well. Why does it uh, have to be aliens? It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, and there are some theories out there which I was I was looking into today, which are quite far fetched. That somehow the moon uh, was created by a highly advanced species of time travelers. Uh, that <laughs> it was us, and that we had somehow messed up in the future. So we've gone into the past to put the moon in to stabilize the planet. I don't necessarily buy that. Uh, but look, if you're already indulging in the possibility that an extraterrestrial species brought the moon to Earth. Well, then maybe, you know, maybe you're right. I mean, it's, it's far-fetched in itself. But I guess the idea is because you, f- you don't find, I mean, I guess in some way you do, you find that there's reference to a highly advanced ancient culture. Mm. Uh, even in the book, Constance references the idea of Atlantis. But it seems to be that, uh, this is obviously a multitude of theories as well. It's not just one. That is a possibility, that maybe there was a highly advanced species here on Earth that did so. But then again, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to make sense when you put it into the context of some of the other stories I'm going to tell you in a okay. moment. Well, the reason I brought it up is because Christopher Knight and Alan Butler yes, wrote, yes, yes. wrote that great stuff. they wrote that great book, Who Built the Moon, mm-hmm. which I can see that I've bought it, but I can't remember if we did it on the show. But I think the crux of their argument was in, within measurements because they go, famously go into the foot and the yard and the schnordle and the bordle and all those, <laughs> yes, you know, did, yeah. all the thumb, thumble and thimble, all those old, really old measurements that are essentially based on the circumference of the earth and, you know, the distance from the earth to the sun and, and all these cosmical measurements are kind of encoded in those really ancient, like the ancient megalithic yard and all those measurements. And they claim that that same system of um, like integer numbers that you see on earth is also represented in the moon. Uh, and that doesn't exist for any other satellite in our solar system, and exactly. it doesn't exist for any other planet. So the suggestion is that the construction of the moon was based on a, a science that's founded on Earth principles. So their conclusion would be that it would be people on Earth that built the moon. Yeah, that's a good point as well. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's what it is. Other theories have been put out there that uh, the way that this thing was constructed, the idea was is that it was hollowed out. And we seem to understand that with the size of the moon, the thickness of the moon, uh, there is some suggestion that there is a 2,000 mile inner void or inner space. I shouldn't say void, but inner space within the moon that we're not entirely sure of what it is made of. And some have speculated that this is a void of some kind. 
if it's a void, it would also suggest that it's space for a species to come along. Now, yes. Look, where she starts, uh, and I, I like it that she uses pop culture references in a way because that kind of, you know, gives it some, you know, I guess more of a, an easier way to understand it. But she points out this old episode of Star Trek. I think it was like the original series. Uh-huh. And she says there's this episode where ultimately... Kirk goes out and they find this asteroid which has to be stopped. And when they come to this asteroid, they very quickly realize that it's not an asteroid at all. It's a intergenerational starship. And the people living inside it have no idea that they're part of this intergenerational starship, which is just mm-hmm. traveling through the universe. Uh, and she says, well, maybe the same thing is happening with this moon, you know, giving this idea that maybe there's a void inside. Something arrived and because it was you know, a species or it was a group and they have now left the moon and they have come to Earth. Maybe it was us. Well, maybe it was us. That's the other possibility. But then if it was us, why is it 12,000 years ago? Right? Humanity, we know humanity existed on Earth more than 12,000 years ago. Because we came. It was like a tourist spot, this beautiful blue planet. And then everyone went down. And, oh, this is beautiful. And then this giant asteroid just went... <laughs> and just b- obliterated everyone. And they had no means to get back to their spaceship. So now this now it's like we're a stuck here. Spaceship, you think? Now we're stuck here. Yeah, I mean that that's a possibility. No, it was like our it was like our holiday yacht, <laughs> and we just parked it. You get what I'm saying? We yeah, parked I, it and then came down for a little holiday at the beach. Yeah. and then the asteroid hit. Yeah, I mean, that, boom, but wiped that, out. But that wasn't twelve thousand years ago either, right? I mean, I guess wasn't that, it? No, no, the asteroid that hit and wiped us out was a lot, a lot earlier than that. I think significantly. No, I know younger Dryas is like that's the theory, right? It's twelve thousand years ago. I thought that was fifteen thousand years ago, but maybe you're right. Maybe it was only. I think roughly. there's several impacts they're talking about now. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, maybe that's an idea as well. Um, but then you've got these cultures, or you've got these advanced ancient cultures that had left evidence of this, and the idea is is that essentially, you're right, Ben. After this catastrophe that happened, it wasn't an asteroid that caused it. When the moon arrived, it caused a massive amount of disruption to the Earth because it was stabilizing the uh, the axis of the Earth. It caused uh-huh. there to be uh, like uh, earthquakes, tidal waves, you know, massive geological upheavals, all because of a result of this artificial satellite arriving. But also, what it did in bringing its destruction, it also brought stability to the Earth. And from that point, around twelve thousand years ago, civilization flourished. Start because of the moon. We had tides, you know. We had, we, as humans, we were able to determine what the seasons were. We could use it for measurement. There was a whole heap of things that happened because of the arrival of this moon. And you know, Constant says something that I've also read in other you know sources as well. Even if you start stepping out of the the scientific side of these things, or even the astrological side of these things, into the idea that Earth itself is, is a very special place. Like it's a very very special place. It seems to be the jewel, uh, certainly in this part of the universe. And that's why there have been species coming here. And perhaps that's why they brought this moon here because. There's a few features that come that are really strange about the moon. You're right, Ben, describing the dimensions of the moon. There was also that idea that look, the moon is 400 times you know, smaller than the sun, but it's yeah, 400 times from it. So, that's the big one. Yeah, the possibility of that happening is almost zero. Like, and that happening yeah. naturally is almost zero, allowing it to form a perfect eclipse. Uh, there's other elements that when we brought back samples from the moon, we found and obviously analyzed those samples, we found that the um, constitution of the moon had metals in it, which are precisely the metals that you would use if you wanted to create a space-faring vehicle that would be resistant to impact and to heat. So, And the composition is not what we find on Earth. Now, that could just simply be a natural thing that just happened. And all of these things could be natural, weird coincidences 
but that doesn't seem to be the case. And even now, there's still a lot of uh, discussion about how the moon actually even got here from a scientific perspective. You know, there's the idea that it pulled off and when the earth was molten, but that doesn't seem to be the case. There was all this idea that something smashed into us and caused it to come off. That doesn't seem to be the case either. So we don't exactly, there's theories, there's hypotheses as to what caused it, but we don't know exactly. So then as you skip forward through the book, we come to some of the answers. We come to some of the ideas as to, well, why are people making these claims? Why are there stories out there that there are extraterrestrials on the moon? Well, it just so happened that from about the late 19th century, people started becoming obsessed with the idea of there being a civilization on the moon and attempted to communicate with it. They attempted to communicate with the civilizations that were on the moon. And this was reinforced by TLP. Now, TLP was transient lunar phenomena. And this is something that astronomers have been seeing for a, a very long time, essentially since the invention of the telescope, and really since people have been staring up at the moon. You mean like lights and, lights. and weird, uh, weird surface activity, like lights, geysers? and Geysers, mists, you know, strange uh, expulsions from the moon. There was one that was described in the 1800s, which was visible with the naked eye, which was incredible because it was backed up by uh, multiple sources is that people looking at the moon on that evening said it formed like horns one evening. There were two mm. protuberances that came out and formed like horns. They kind of came up, came together almost touching and then didn't, and then fell back in and disappeared. Yeah, this all sounds like Electric Universe stuff, though, when you think about it. It does. Like, yes. I initially reading those reports years and years ago, I'd think, oh, what is that? That's so, like, is there some kind of giant machine coming out of the... The, the moon, but no, it, it sounds like electrical activity, something arcing like up, arcing some response to some kind of um, alien object, you know, like an asteroid or who knows. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it could just simply be a, a natural phenomenon that takes place if it's electrical. Um, you know, there's also the idea with TLS, um, you know, that, uh, sorry, TLP, is that you've also got um, these strange mists that will suddenly form. Then it crosses into more, you know, unusual ideas of there being mining operations that are taking place on the moon. If you recall... Uh, quite a while ago, I did a show on the idea that there were strange structures and spires that had been seen on the moon. Um, and these spires may be associated with some type of mining operations. If you remember the X-Craft, there's these weird crosses that have been seen at the edge of craters. And obviously, there's pareidolia, which takes place. So when you look at these images, there is a risk, of course, of people interpreting it in a multitude of ways. It could, could truly be natural phenomena. But Constance makes a really great point, and it's something that I, I totally agree with. Yes, all these things, like these weird mining equipment that possibly could be used on the moon at the edge of a crater, it's always coincidental that it's at the edge of a crater. You have these weird lights that are happening. You have processions of lights. You have lines that are showing up. Like there's reports of people describing that they'll be looking at the moon through a telescope and then all of a sudden there'll be appearance of like a thick line. It's called the, I call it the Sharpie phenomena. Because people describe that when they're looking at it, all of a sudden there's this thick, black, sharp line which appears across the moon. And you could go, well, maybe there's something wrong with someone's uh, telescope, but it's been reported by multiple people throughout <laughs> multiple generations. A sharpie line. It's like this black line which suddenly appears across and then disappears. It's like this odd line that shows up. one of up. the moon worms. I don't know, but there are other structures that do seem to have uh, worm-like kind of uh, movement attached to them that people are witnessing. But what Constance says is, look, all of this stuff could be misinterpretations. All of it could be, well, most of it 
could be pareidolia. Most of it could be people just making mistakes or even actually you know, hyping up something that isn't real, getting too caught up in the possibility of there being an alien civilization or some type of civilization on the moon. But if there's just one, if just one of those things is real, well, then it means that there is something going on on the moon, mm. which is important for humanity. But what that is, who knows? We've tried to go there. We've tried to go there with the Apollo missions, and those Apollo missions seemingly were abruptly cut short. The last three planned Apollo missions were stopped. Now, people have said the reason why NASA did that is due to a lack of funding and you know, yada, yada, yada. But there seem to be other factors that might be playing a role. And that might be simply because we found something that we weren't f- supposed to find. And in fact, we were warned off the moon. And this is something that has been described with um, Apollo 11. I'm going to go through a few of the Apollo missions, but let's start with Apollo 11, You know, the most well-known one, the most anticipated event really in world history, and obviously one of the greatest accomplishments of man. This was launched on the 16th of July in 1969. And of course, we know that Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, but there's this story out there that just never seems to go away. You know, it's just, it's it's a legendary tale which is out there. But according to some of the reports, the astronauts witnessed something that can only be described as shocking, disturbing, and frightening, she writes. As the story goes, the astronauts saw extraterrestrial spaceships sitting on the edge of the crater. Armstrong apparently conveyed a message to Mission Control via a private medical line stating that there were extraterrestrial spaceships parked on the rim of the crater and that they were being watched. When the astronauts were reporting the situation in which they found themselves to Mission Control, there was a two-minute minute radio silence that the public didn't know about. Well, they obviously weren't hearing what was going on. Now, the reason why we know this story is because allegedly the conversation was overheard by ham radio operators that were tuning in to the signal. Now, I don't know how true that is or not, but this is a legendary story, as she points out, that has been out there for a long time. Uh, And in itself, you go, well, yeah, maybe it's just a story that's being made up, but then you combine it with the other stories of the other Apollo missions. You combine it with these stories of uh, weird things being seen on the moon, these mists that move, these lights that move, these alleged crafts that even are seen to move. In fact, there was this crazy story that describes it comes from the Vimanas or comes from you know, old traditional stories about the Vimanas, you know, the the Indian stories of these flying craft. Well, there is a story of people witnessing what appears to be symbols on the moon. And one of these symbols, it kind of is like a Nazca kind of line that was witnessed. And one of these symbols was like that of a bird. And, you know, the idea is it's been speculated that somehow the Americans knew about it. And this is why they called the the lunar module the eagle. So the eagle has landed. It was kind of like a way to acknowledge it. But if you look into the Vimanas or into the stories of the Vimanas, there's actually stories of craft. Yeah, you've got the kind of, you know, saucer-shaped ones and the ones that have got a pyramid kind of structure. But there's also reports of Vimanas that look like birds. Like they're actually built in the shape of a bird. Really? And some of the tales describe them being able to go to the moon. So they're functioning. And then, of course, you've got these stories coming out that people that um, you know, people using telescopes have seen these odd bird-like structures while at the same time seeing those other Nazca line kind of structures on the moon. So I want to go back for a little bit. And you're right, Ben. You did mention the book there by Christopher Knight and Alan Butler. And we, we did cover it. I found the episode. It's great. back on uh, in May of 2017 on epi- episode 19, season 17. Okay. We'll link to that so people can go back and listen to that. But their theory really was is that 
The moon itself, it was built as a message for intelligent beings on Earth. In fact, they said it was designed to be a meaningful uh, signal to intelligent creatures living on Earth. And as we started to advance and start to reach a certain level of technological capability and, and knowledge, we would be able to interpret and understand those signals. Seems like that really hasn't happened, unfortunately. We've kind of gone down this other path of something has happened. There's some type of knowledge somewhere where all of this stuff is being either suppressed, dismissed, or hidden, and that's what's been going on with NASA. There are a multitude of reports of people describing and uh, working for NASA, uh, working for the photography division, and acting to actually, before you know, Photoshop came about, to airbrush any anomalies out of these images. But what's really fascinating about some of these reports is that apparently... The Japanese, the Japanese Space Agency, purchased a whole heap of these Apollo mission photographs uh, many, many years after the missions had ended. And they got a lot of these photographs, but one of the photographs that they got um, hadn't been airbrushed correctly. It hadn't been, or it hadn't been removed, or somehow it got involved. And in this particular image, you have uh, one of the Apollo missions heading back towards Earth. And as it was heading back towards Earth, no, I apologize, it was one of the Mercury missions. And as it was heading back towards Earth, it looked out into the skyline. And the reason why the photograph was taken, because, and I'll link to this in the show notes so you can see it, on the top left-hand corner, or towards the middle, you can see the moon. Then there are three large lit objects that are just sitting following the craft as it's returning to Earth. This idea that's put forward by Constance and other researchers that the extraterrestrials or some civilization, some advanced species, is monitoring our attempts to move out into space. These inhabitants that may have built it or even still living there are trying to monitor what we're doing, but for it's, what purposes, we don't know. It's been a pretty regular claim of some abductees that they've been taken to the moon as well. And of yeah. course, how can we forget Ingo Swan? Yes, exactly. Ingo Swan went to the moon, he saw the giant see-through dome and all the nude men working away on well, <laughs> getting helium-3. To give that more context, you are right. So there was a story that came out from the family of Axelrod. Axelrod was this guy that was employed by uh, the government to create a group of or a group of remote viewers to go and view inhabitants on the moon because there was some weird activity that was taking place in the moon. This is all according to Ingo Swan. Yeah, it is. But there's this weird thing that happened to me today, and I can't find it in my notes. But I was also reading that apparently, I, I well, the family of Axelrod, so I got the guy's name, what? came forward with this story. And I've been looking for, it must be either it's in this book, and I can't find the highlight, or it was something I was reading today. Although Never heard of that before. No, neither have I. And then although I'm like, some of it may have come from Bob Dean, and Bob Dean is a rather... Uh, controversial figure, shall we say, uh, in the a field. liar, so, one might say. No, he's not a liar. I don't. I don't know if he's a liar. He's certainly uh, controversial, and he's quite. Uh, I mean, he's a retired U.S. Army command sergeant, apparently. So, um, I think that he's some of the stuff he's saying is quite wild. But we shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand simply because what he's saying is crazy. Although. Uh, Bob did appear at a exopolitics summit in 2009 in Barcelona in Spain, and those sorts of summits do attend to attract um, some more uh, out there, I suppose, people. But, I mean, he's made some wild claims. He said that, um, you know, the, um, apparently aliens stopped us from starting World War III in 1961. Uh, there's cities on Mars, and that in 1964 that Earth had been visited by at least four different types of alien races, all with different agendas. But uh, he does refer to the Apollo missions, and he has this real doozy about it. And apparently at this presentation, he got all excited describing this. 
But he says that there's a real strangeness attached to the Apollo missions, particularly Apollo 11. And he says that NASA has been very dishonest about what really went on with the Apollo missions. And we have reams of data and photographs of extremely bizarre things from that mission that not only prove that aliens were there, but also prove that they've been there for a very long time. And these things have all conveniently disappeared or have been flat out destroyed. And How does he know they exist then? So he claims that he was working uh, within NASA or, you know, connected to it in some way. And part of... Black Ops NASA. No, he doesn't say he was Black Ops. None of, of that's thrown in. <laughs> uh, but he does say that uh, when he was working there, he was asked to destroy 40 rolls of film. And in this 40 rolls of film were several thousand images and frames that the authorities determined that we shouldn't be able to see. They were disruptive, socially unacceptable, and politically unacceptable. Did he see any of them? He's seen a few of them. He hasn't seen all of them. Just dick pics of the astronauts. (laughs) Yes, that's why that was socially and politically unacceptable. (laughs) It wasn't aliens. (laughs) Who's not going to take a dick pic before you go into space? Could be the last chance you ever get. Take one in space. Uh... But he does say, look, I have some of the film that was preserved and wasn't destroyed. And uh, there are some of these images. And one of those images, yes, was the one that I was describing about the the weird three craft being seen. They don't really look like craft, though. I mean, Ben, if you take a look at that image that I just sent you, I mean, essentially it looks like you see a moon as a dot of light and then you see three other things that look like they're kind of either pyramid-shaped to one's elongated. They just look like lights. Uh, they're not very, very clear. So they obviously are very much open to interpretation. Um, but he suggests that in some of these images, especially from Apollo 12, you see um, UFOs that are flying over the moon. You see there's something that's in orbit. Uh, a lot of this stuff is you know, very clearly anomalous artifacts that have uh, you know, no real uh, meaning for being there. And yet they are, and they've all been covered up. In fact, he claims that there's something known as the Landsberg Crater. This is roughly around 60 kilometers from the landing site of Apollo 12, the 1969 mission. And the crater is notable for its high rim and it has inner terraces. But in there is something very strange. He said they gave it a special designation because inside that crater was construction. There was active construction going on. There were gigantic facilities in the crater. They were um, specifically going there. Who's saying this? Bob Dean. Bob Dean. They specifically went there with that mission to go and photograph and monitor what was going on. Uh, But now it's all been covered up, hidden, and as he claims, destroyed. And that's the Nazi base. No, I don't think it's a Nazi base. Uh, This ties in, you know, with other theories as well, which is like what you said with Ingo Swan. It's like there was these weird naked men that were were, were mining something. Were they clones? I can't remember. Yeah, the idea was that they were like something that was robotic, humanoids. Yeah, Uh, all muscly and sweaty. Yeah, but they weren't Ingo Swan was very uh, vivid about it. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that actually from his book, Penetration? Yeah. Uh, but there's other stories that constant uh, constants references of where you know we've spoken about the idea of there being glass domes on the moon, and there are reports of these things you know changing the color of the photographs. Like when you look at the photographs of the moon, the photo the moon should just simply be gray, like it should be a gray color. But the photographs reveal these slight iridescent reds and pinks and greens that you see coming through, which have been said to be because it's glass. Like Mm. there's glass domes there, there's glass structures that are causing this effect to take place. And 
even though those are the photographs that have been released to the public, you still have the effect of the colour, which is coming through, and that's why we can see it. Are you convinced by any of these photos? Because I've never seen one where I think it's some kind of smoking gun. They're, they always look like, yeah, it could be anything. I'm not. I'm not. You're totally right. I feel like there's as much as it's, it's truly fascinating. Uh, and when you put it all together, it really does make you start questioning the nature of this because, yeah, there's the weird uh, mathematical elements that are involved. There's the weird you know, alleged artifacts. There's the stories that are out there. But you're right. None of these single photographs, like not a single photograph of me goes, oh, well, that's definitely that. I mean, there's photographs that you can see that look like on the edge of craters, you don't just have these mining operations that are taking place where there's these weird X formations, these weird cross formations that are spraying something. It's like they must be mining something and processing it and then spraying it out the back of the crater, which is allegedly you know, consistent with why people are seeing that transient phenomena. It's because that's the operations, like these clouds and mists that people have been seeing over these centuries is because of this. I don't know if that's exactly what's taking place, but I can see the connection of why people say that. Really though, nothing stands out as being compelling. There's like photographs of there being what appear to be bridges that have been built. And these bridges, if they were built on earth, they would collapse because they're so incredibly enormous. Like you can see them. It's like this large bridge structure with an empty space underneath it. But could that be natural? Like, I mean, I'm no space geologist. Could that just simply be a natural formation, which is being interpreted as being some type of, you know, out there structure? Some kind of Nazi viewing platform, perhaps? Well, okay. So that's the other thing that I was reading today, which I didn't bother going into a too great a detail, right? But uh, that obviously comes up because you're right. Whenever you talk about there being structures on the moon or some type of construction, there's the idea that the Nazis somehow built some type of facility yeah. on the moon. And that came about from this story, right? There was a story that just before the Second World War, I think it was uh, maybe in the ni- early 1930s, that there was a Roswell-type incident uh, on a property in Poland that happened to be owned by the family of Eva Braun. Now I'm like, come on, like it's just, it happened to be owned by Eva Braun. Now, according to the story, when the farmers found this crash saucer, this crash saucer style craft, it was uh, 10 feet high by 12 feet in width or something like that. And it was like a classic saucer. And uh, the SS or a special SS detachment was deployed to go and retrieve this aircraft or go and retrieve this object. When they did so, they put their best scientists to, and they put it deep, deep, deep underground in some mm. underground facility somewhere. And apparently they put their best scientists to go and work on it, to reverse engineer it. The technology was even beyond the Nazis like, and their top scientists. They weren't able to reverse engineer everything. They did reverse engineer some of it, apparently. And that's why towards the end of the war, you started seeing these wundercraft, apparently, that were being created by the Nazis. Like they were developing advanced aircraft that were showing up and, you know, being seen because they had reverse engineered it and it had taken the entire length of the war for them to be able to just get these very rudimentary copies into the air. Well, Adamski claimed that he overheard his Venusian contacts speaking German. Really? And there's uh, Everett Clark who reported German-speaking aliens landing in a field. Uh, Everett Clark was a man, sorry, behind his house. Um, and there's also another really early famous one where I can't I can't recall it right now, but it's like a classic source of contact where this uh, this guy I think he was in the US he overheard these two saucer pilots talking who had landed in a flying saucer, but he said they were speaking German. But because of his his Germanic roots, his family was German. Um, he understood that they weren't only speaking German; they were speaking High German. 
Oh, like the old, the old like German. German. So it's like an old German civilization. That's yeah. I've heard those those urban legends as well. And look, the problem with the story about you know Ava Braun's family and a, a crashed UFO and the reverse engineering is that I think from what I found looking at the timeline, when they said that an SS group was deployed, the SS didn't exist at that point. So immediately it's like, oh well, that's, oh yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> I, don't like, put, I don't put any come on yeah. in these uh, these Nazi on the moon stories. And and it was revealed, I just think uh, a week or two ago, that th- there was a declassified FBI document to was it to Kissinger? It was to Kissinger from someone stationed in Spain. And essentially, the document revealed it was just very short. It's like a paragraph saying uh, it, Hitler was buried in Spain. What uh, we found the grave, and you know, it's all—it's an unmarked grave. This was covered up by the Spanish government. Uh, he died at the age of sixty-eight. Yeah, it's in this FBI uh, memo to Kissinger. Sixty-eight. I so I think Hitler was in his mid-fifties, maybe when he died. So that means that he got a you know a good decade out yeah. afterwards. Where did I see it? It was on Revolver the other day. I'll see if I can find well, it. Well, didn't a lot of Nazis it. escape to Spain after the Second World well, War? Well, I think a couple, a couple of them. Yeah, was essentially... I mean, a lot went to South America, apparently, but... Well, that's, yeah, that's all the other rumours, but... Here it is. Is Adolf Hitler buried in Spain? Memorandum to Henry Kissinger could hold the clue. Um, yeah, this came out in in late November, and it was from... Let me just open up the document. I'll read it to you. Uh, this is subject, Bavarian operation. Memorandum for Mr. Henry Kissinger... It's um, from Theodore L. Elliott, signed FBI. This is an official document that's been declassified by the FBI. Mm. Adolf Hitler is buried in Spain in the cemetery of Almedina, I think it says. After the Second World War, the government of Francisco Franco concealed him in Madrid, and there he died at the age of 68 years. His body lies in a tomb without name of the mentioned Spanish cemetery. It is, this is underlined, it is suitable that this information never publicised. Except on Mysterious Universe. Signed Executive Secretary Theodore Elliott Jr. So what you're saying is Hitler didn't escape to the moon in a UFO. Yes. That's that's why I put that up. He's not on the moon. Well, look, (laughs) speaking of Germans, though, we have to go back to the early 1800s. And there was a German astronomer by the name of Johann Karl Friedrich Gauss. And he basically came up with this elaborate signaling system that he thought he could use to contact the beings on the moon. It was known as the Gauss-Pythagorean right triangle uh, proposal. What? Yeah, and his idea was... Could he come up with a catchier name? (laughs) How's he going to pitch that? He's German, that's what they do. His idea was... Was it again? Sorry, it was called the Gauss-Pythagorean right triangle proposal. So his idea was, is that Pythagorean uh, mathematics was a universally understood mathematics. Any sufficiently advanced culture would be able to understand this. So his idea was, is that you could actually go into a pine forest and plant large fields of wheat within that pine forest in certain geo-Pythagorean like uh, representations right. to be able to communicate with an advanced species on the moon. So it's almost like creating a giant crop circle. It's like a giant A reverse sign. crop circle. Yeah, giant would, sign that would be able to be seen from space. And so the moon inhabitants would be able to see it. They would see the mathematical representations. They would be able to interpret it because they understand mathematics. But wouldn't they just look down at the earth and see all the lights that are on at night and go, <laughs> okay, there's people down there. I- well, maybe I think the idea was is that it was to demonstrate that we were sufficiently um, knowledgeable. So if we were a high enough society because we understood that kind of mathematics that they would too, so we'd yeah. kind of reach that 
I don't know. That, mathematics is the uh, measurement oh, of, yeah, of morality yeah. in the universe, <laughs> is it? So then, of course, we know that Nikola Tesla was said to have sent radio signals to the moon. He also claimed that he got a response from lunar inhabitants. We know that old story, but obviously there's you know a lot of ideas that perhaps he was being um, conned by people. Uh, but then you have the Austrian astronomer by the name of Joseph Littrow. And in fact, I think there's a Littrow... Uh, crater on the moon. So he was right. recognized, right? He had quite an unusual idea about how he could communicate with the moon inhabitants. His idea was to dig deep trenches in the Sahara Desert, like massive deep trenches okay. in the desert. Spend like a trillion dollars <laughs> digging these trenches. Fill them with kerosene <laughs> and ignite them in the night sky, <laughs> hoping that E.T. would notice humanity. Then we will get some frankfurts and we will put them in the fire and we will all have a feast. <laughs> and then the Germans and the E.T.s will see us. No, no, that's not what happened. He's Austrian, get it right. No, he wants the Germans to see you because they were on the moon. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) So then you've got uh, researcher Dylan Clearfield. Now, he's uh, made some alarming claims, but he says that there are uh, codes that are actually found on the very landscape of the moon itself. So it's not just what's been happening here with old Austrian and and German astronomers trying to contact. There's allegedly been uh, attempts by some type of inhabitant of the moon to contact Earth. He claims that there are huge stone formations that have changed shape over years. And since there isn't any environmental conditions on the moon that would cause the you know, the rocks or the stone to change because of mechanical means, it suggests that there is someone that's doing it. So these ancient earthworks or these ancient mounds that are on the moon are actually some type of secret signaling to possibly an ET apparatus that is operating on Earth. And that then ties back into the idea that, yes, it was placed here to monitor Earth and they've come and they've integrated amongst us. Um, I don't necessarily buy that. But Charles Fort as well, like in his book, New Lance, he describes you know, these uh, functional geometric shapes that have been seen uh, in the Lynn crater. And he suggests that this would be a way for lunar inhabitants to be able to attempt to communicate with Earth. I mean, it's all very... Now, a simple kind of idea, I suppose. And maybe it's like why we have crop circles. Like there is a species which is trying to communicate with us, but we're just not interpreting it correctly. And so that would suggest that any of these methods wouldn't work either because we haven't interpreted crop circles. We have no understanding of what they are. Why would any of this work? Um, there's also like a report that came of there being like some of the NASA images. They show actual letters that have been seen. There was like a, a large S shape that it clearly was somehow artificially, it's claimed artificially made. Again, moonworms. Maybe moonworms. I mean, who knows what this stuff is. But then, you know, you start looking at the Apollo missions and this is where things kind of get strange because it wasn't just these symbols and these structures that are being created. There's also throwaway reports as well. I should mention that uh, Constance was referring to, you know, these ancient cultures which have some type of knowledge, like an oral tradition of the moon arriving. Well, apparently there's like... um, Allegedly in Tibet, there's certain um, like monasteries that have these moonstones, like these very large moonstones, which have actually come from the moon. And the only way that they could what? have gotten it is because maybe an extraterrestrial civilization dropped them off. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Where is she getting uh, these stories That, that from? makes perfect sense. But you find from, let's start with Apollo 8, right? There were strange garbled sounds that started coming over the radio. And then there was this intolerable noise that came through. 
And astronaut Al Warden actually received this um, strange message as well in Apollo 15. It's a very similar kind of thing. Uh, No, not like that, right? But according to the story... He heard this mysterious transmission over the radio in what he believed to be, you're right, I'm sorry, a possible alien language. (laughs) But the thing is, though, is that he first, this is, people have said, well, no, when you're traveling through space, there's a whole heap of things like solar flares and electromagnetic interference. Of course, it's going to cause the radio to behave in a certain way. Hence why Apollo 8 got those strange garbled sounds and an intolerable noise. The intolerable noise was just simply some type of, you know, flare or radiation or something. It's like when you put a mobile phone near a radio and it creates that sound. That's what it was. Um, But according to Al Warden, he said that the sound that came through was first breathing. It was actually someone breathing, then a whistling sound, then someone speaking. And what was said, and this is the crazy thing, is that this was recorded in the recordings. It was Mara Rabi Alandi Dini Endeavor Aya Kos Alim. And this was um, leaked in France, of course. It's always the French. This is, this is why we know what it is. It was leaked in France, uh, and language experts have tr- attempted to interpret it and haven't been able to determine what it is at all. Uh, then, of course, we get the Mercury 9 um, mission with Gordon Cooper. This was May of 1963, and uh, it was launched on the 15th. Astronaut Gordon Cooper, while passing over Hawaii, claims that a mysterious voice in a language that was unknown to Earth was picked up on his special radio frequency. Now, as he detected this, and that was, you know, unusual in itself, as he crossed over Australia, Cooper claims that he saw a huge green UFO that was moving towards his craft. Now, you could go, look, this is some type of um, effect from space radiation or he's misinterpreted something. No, it was also picked up by a tracking station which was monitoring him. Yeah, so, Cooper's one of the best sources. I mean, yeah, Gordon. He's stuck to his story till he till the end. He has. There's some audio out there from him. The problem is, is that the guy was completely denounced. Like it was. There's reports out there of, um, you know, the military or you know the government sources saying, well, it's such a shame that you know an astronaut has become you know a waffling old man or has become a a confused old man. But he wasn't an old man when he first started talking about this. He's been talking about this for a long time. But the problem is, if you do listen to some of his more recent, and I, I believe he's passed away now, but if you listen to some of his more recent interviews, he really does sound like a repetitive, waffling old man. Yeah, right. <laughs> unfortunately, undermines his story a little bit. But the fact that he's still out there wanting to tell his story says something. Like, are you going to keep up a story? Like, if you're getting close to the end of your life and you know it, aren't you more likely to want to tell your story and have less concern? Um, you know, there are other people like Bob Dean who has said, well, look, the, the Apollo astronauts, they were all threatened, not with just their lives, but also the lives of their families. Like if they spoke about what they saw, terrible things would have happened. But I'm like, what they saw was a studio, a movie studio. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's that's one of the other theories out there. Look, this is the other thing as well. If you focus on these stories, well, then any of the conspiracy theories about us not going to the moon are all thrown out because yeah, they had to be in space for yeah. this stuff to happen. Um, you know, we've also got these stories of man as we progressed into space. Yeah, you know, ET was watching us, and in fact, you know, four decades after the Apollo ten missions there were recordings that were released in 2008. This is known as space music. 
And the story behind this is quite fascinating. It's alleged that, and we know that this is exactly what happens, as a, uh, a module goes around the dark side of the moon, obviously all radio communications are shut off or are, are affected, obviously, by the moon. But as that happens, there's still onboard recorders that are recording the sounds and everything that's going on. As they come back, those sounds and everything's uploaded, or when it comes back to Earth, uh, those tapes are downloaded and transcribed. So in 2008, this was beforehand hidden away deep in NASA archives and classified. It was declassified and then released. Now, when it was released, it describes a very weird thing that happened. When the module went around the dark side of the moon, all of a sudden, these strange sounds started coming through the radio. But the sounds weren't like it was just random noises. It was what they called space music. It was quite unusual. It had a musical tone to it. And it was so unusual that the astronauts on board, when they came back, or actually, and this is in the transcripts and we have the recordings, were saying, are we even going to tell them about it? We're going to have to talk about it or something along those lines. Yeah, right. like that, and obviously it doesn't matter because it was recorded. So what was the explanation? Some kind of radiation? It was radiation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, this isn't radiation. This is... Isn't th- it? I don't think so. I think there's something... What was the music like? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think think there's something more to this. Yes, you can have, you know, odd radiation, which would cause strange sounds and interference and that kind of stuff. That all makes sense. But to have something like that, to have seasoned... And this is what Constant points out, and I I agree with her. um, To have seasoned astronauts that are trained to understand and know, you know, what strange sounds are in regards to space, that kind of stuff, to experience something like that and be clearly shaken by it, to discuss whether or not they're going to even report it suggests to me that there was something about this which was beyond just a simple, you know, radiant, you know, effect that's coming through. So what mission was this again? This was um, Apollo 10. So Apollo 10, space, space sounds, music. space music. Yeah. Can, can we hear it? Well, yeah, you can look it up. Yeah. Apollo 10 moon music, two minutes and 25 seconds. There Let's you have go. a listen. Do you want some more brownies? Now. You want some more brownies? That hit music even sounds outer spacey, doesn't it? You hear that? That whistling sound? No, I can't. The frequency must be too high for us to hear it through our headphones. Or it's just it's just too low. But you can obviously hear them re- reacting to yeah. it. Yeah. Hey, Tom, is your, is your insulation all burned off here on the front side of your window over here? Right yeah. Mine's all burned off. <laughs> God, I have to make it more exciting. It's so boring listening to these old men in the space capsule. Well, that's why I didn't bother including it because, yeah, it's just it's just a transcript and obviously them describing their reaction to it. But their reaction to it is unusual and it fits in with multitudes of other Apollo missions and Mercury missions that have had the same thing take place. So, you know, then we move forward to people like uh, uh, Dylan Clearfield, who, you know, have spoken of you know, these uh, errant signals coming through. Then you've got Don Wilson uh, in his book, which was Secrets of Our Space uh, Ship Moon. He writes of a strange event that was uh, witnessed by Japanese astronomers from Menju University in 1958. On September the 29th, Kenza Huro, uh, Toyota, spotted what appeared to be a huge black set of letters There were English letters so pronounced that they were easily discernible. The letters formed two words. The words were P-Y-A-X and J-W-A. What? No one knows to this day what these letters made or what these letters meant and uh, exactly what they were. And they disappeared. 
So, I mean, was he reading the serial number of a telescope? Is that what he saw? But according to the story, they were pronounced and they were obviously on the face of the moon. They were inside a crater and they were huge. But why would a Japanese researcher be seeing? Like, I understand it if someone looking at the moon sees weird symbols, right? Like alien kind of symbols. Yep. I'd be like, well, that would make sense. Yeah. But no, it was English letters. P-Y-A-X-J-W-A. I don't know what to make of it. Um, the one that I, was the, the strange letter S, right? Because this is, there's other reports of this. It's actually uh, seen in NASA image 1480-1043-9. You can see that there's an enormous S that was clearly created through artificial means. Again, moonworms. <laughs> maybe. It's all adding up. Maybe, maybe. I'm going to take my mole man army and go to the moon, get a harem of moonworms. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to begin to know what you're going to do with that. That's going to be a little bit disturbing. Um, so yeah, there is you know, these reports of this stuff coming through. But then let's skip forward, right? Let's skip forward to some of the other missions to see what people have seen, astronauts have seen, have experienced. Um, but there's reports of Apollo 7, which was launched on October the 11th in 1968. This was the first Apollo to be put into space or to put astronauts, I'm sorry, into space. They witnessed a large, what they reported, beautiful, uh, angelic, metallic UFO next to the craft. They took photographs of it, but then duct tape was used on the images to cover it up before it was released to the press. Duct tape. Duct tape. Like This was the duct tape cover-up. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, Apollo 8, well, then that was the Earthrise photo, that classic yeah, yeah. image that we know, December 21st, 1968. Uh, they witnessed a sphere so brilliant and so bright that they couldn't even make out what was going on inside their own craft. They contacted ground control and are quoted as saying, we have been informed that Santa Claus does exist. It said that Santa Claus was the code for witnessing extraterrestrial craft because there was a possibility, as we know, that other people operating ham radios may have picked stuff up. So this is why they did it. Um, and you can pass it off as a joke. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can dismiss it. You can do that kind of stuff. Uh, Apollo 10, you know, we've just spoken about what happened with Apollo 10. Um, there was something that did happen, though, on Apollo 10, which then comes back to this idea of the guardians of the Apollo missions. So with Apollo 10, uh, it was basically a free run for Apollo 11. So they were going to do everything that Apollo 11 was going to do except for land on the moon. What they were going to do is get the lunar module to come down to the moon without landing and then go back again. But it's reported that as the uh, module was coming down towards the moon, there was some type of malfunction. This malfunction was caused by some type of what appeared to be a radio interference or something like that, and it lost its connection with the command module, and as a result, it could have caused them to be stranded. Now, the pilot, uh, Eugene Semen, he noticed a UFO just hovering slightly in the distance. Now, the object quietly disappeared, like it caught his attention. He looked, it disappeared. As soon as this thing disappeared, it only took a few moments, and all of the systems were completely restored to normal. Now, the theory is here is that one, the UFO was emitting some type of interference signal that uh, caused the blockage and you know caused an interference in an unknown way. Or two, is that the UFO was there monitoring the activity, and as soon as it realized that there was something wrong, it did something to fix the connection between the two spacecraft, and that's how it was like a guardian. It was repairing them. And there's other stories as well that when um, that story came about of Apollo 11 and them walking on the moon and seeing these craft that were all around the crater. The idea there was, is that 
And this was actually reported in a book by Brad Steiger that uh, he spoke to Sergei Borish. Now, Sergei Borish was uh, saying that the Russians were observing the moon landings. And Borish's opinion was is that the UFOs seemed poised to help the two astronauts should something have gone wrong. And after oh, the Eagle, the lander module set down and everything appeared to be secure, the extraterrestrial ships left. That's so sweet of them. Well, I don't know. Just to be there looking at our big brothers in space. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe. big grey bros. Maybe they were preparing to take them aboard their ship and rape them. Well, that's... Considering the history of abduction accounts. Maybe you're right. Maybe they wanted to eat them. Maybe. Look, there's there's some very, very strange things. Like if you look into this book, and this book obviously references a whole, you know, collection of other stories, there's a lot of weirdness, not only associated with the moon, but with us going into space. You know, some people have suggested either contactees, UFO researchers, um, you know, the abductees, they've described that humanity is not meant to go into space, that this is some type of, I'm not going to say prison planet, that's the wrong way to describe it, but essentially humanity is not meant to leave Earth. And every time we've attempted to do so, there's some type of interference by an extraterrestrial species, which is stopping us from going, whether because we're too aggressive, we're too dangerous, we're too violent. Uh, maybe they're all the reasons that have been put forward. Or the other possibility is, is that we're just simply some type of science experiment and they want to keep us quarantined. You know, we, if they've interfered in our genome, if they're, and we see that, like we see that within our genome, something changed, you know, around, I don't know, if it was 30,000 years ago, where something in our species caused us to have larger brain capacity, something occurred. Yeah, maybe it was random, or maybe there was some type of interference by an alien species, and they're keeping us here on Earth until we reach a point. Now, what that point is, who really knows? But what I've done is I've collected some audio here of uh, a number of people that have made similar claims about the Apollo missions, about going into space, and about how uh, dangerous it is for us. And apparently, um, according to the United States Air Force Colonel Ross Dedrickson, he saw UFOs over the Capitol, over Washington, D.C., back in the 1950s. I mean, this guy has uh, seen some really incredible things. But he describes that um, essentially... They've been stopping us from developing nuclear weapons and nuclear capabilities for a long time. Now, uh, you may recall, I mean, there's plenty of reports out there of, I think it was Robert Hastings who described, um, you know, UFOs interfering with Minutemen missile sites, that kind of stuff. Ross Derrickson uh, has been on the ground and he was essentially employed by the Air Force and by the government at other points because his job has changed. But his job was to monitor the nuclear silos uh, and the nuclear stockpiles to know exactly what was going on at all times. And he reported some pretty unusual things. Take a listen to him describing what happened when he went to some of these sites. And even though it wasn't officially being reported, you had security guards and other people at the site saying they'd seen UFOs hovering over these sites. Uh, during that period of time, one of my functions was to uh, accompany a security team which visited all of the nuclear facilities to check on the security weapons. And we were getting reports of visits by UFOs over the storage facilities and even some of the manufacturing facilities. Uh, The formal reports were few and far between, but the security people were reluctant to report many of them because the protocol and the bureaucracy involved in in reporting them, they just avoided reporting. And among these incidents were 
a couple of nuclear weapons sent into space were destroyed by the extraterrestrials. In talking to various contacts throughout, they would allude to the fact that these did happen. There was, for example, the, the missile, Minuteman missile, which destroyed the launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base. They actually photographed the uh, UFO following the missile as it climbed into space and shining a beam on it, which uh, neutralized the, v, uh, the missile. Well, there was one incident when uh, we exploded a nuclear weapon uh, over the Pacific, and this was in about 61, I believe. And the consternation that it caused because it shut out communications entirely over the Pacific Basin for a number of hours in which no radio transmission was available at any time. And this was very significant, and of course, this was one of the things that the extraterrestrials later, I learned, were highly concerned about because it affected our ionosphere. And in fact, spacecraft were unable to operate because of the pollution in the magnetic field of which they depended upon. Ah, so that's the first time I've heard an actual explanation as to why the extraterrestrials have interfered. We've speculated on it before. A whole heap of people have speculated on why extraterrestrials, UFOs were disabling and shutting down Minutemen missile sites, nuclear missiles, these sorts of things. I've always thought it was because, like what we hear from the contactees, they saw that a terrible catastrophe was coming and they were going to prevent a nuclear holocaust from taking place. They wanted to no. save us and save no. the Earth. And you know what? It makes perfect <laughs> sense because most species are extremely selfish. They're just concerned about the ionosphere being polluted and not being able to operate their craft in our atmosphere or on Earth. They it want to makes, get around so they can do some more probing. It makes perfect sense. And in fact, um, you know, I didn't include it in the audio. I'll play you some more in a moment. But he was also describing, because I had to cut it up because he is an older man and he's quite you know, difficult we to get put it. together. But he was describing that um, he's like, we were trying to send nuclear weapons into space. Like we were trying to set and conduct experiments right. on the moon. And essentially the one that we did over the, over the Pacific, it initiated an EMP. This is what the extraterrestrials were worried about. They were worried about electromagnetic pulses as a result of the nuclear weapons, not the nuclear weapons themselves. Makes sense. And what they were going to do. So then take a listen to what he describes when we tried to send a nuclear weapon to the moon. The very end of the 70s or the early 80s, we attempted to put a nuclear weapon on the moon and explode it for scientific measurements and other things, which was not acceptable to the extraterrestrials. They destroyed the weapon before it got to the moon. Mm. He doesn't say how, uh, but it does fit in with other ideas. Now, he said the reason why we did this, as you heard there, was because we were going to conduct some type of experiment or we were going to see, you know, what happens when we hit the moon. Others have speculated that, no, tying what we were saying earlier is that, one, there was some, I'm not saying it's a Nazi base, but there is some type of base. There is an extraterrestrial base. There is lunar inhabitants of some kind that are hostile to humanity, and we had to eliminate them. This is why after the Apollo missions or during the Apollo missions, we discovered that there was a threat, a hostile extraterrestrial threat to Earth on the moon. And we had to wipe that out. And that goes back to the Ingo Swan stuff. With Ingo Swan, even though we laugh about it, the fact that he saw these weird naked men performing mining operations on the moon, it's alleged that the extraterrestrials somehow realized that the remote viewers were there and they were angry about it. Yeah, they were hostile. I often wonder with Ingo's work whether he had to make it ridiculous. 
That's a good point. Like, yeah. it just it's almost like there's some kind of truth hidden amongst the the silliness of the story. Yeah. Uh, and if he just laid it out straight, it wouldn't have been acceptable. Yeah, that's a possibility. The other idea is that um, this group or whatever they are, these inhabitants have dwindled. Like they've slowly dwindled and they're becoming more aggressive and more dangerous because uh, they need to make a move pretty soon. And that move is to come to Earth. Um, but because their their group is dwindling. And like, Bring it. Well, there was even reports of like these domes, right? There's allegedly these domes have been found. There's, they show up in NASA photographs, which have been allegedly airbrushed and hidden and taken away, that some of these domes have been smashed by external means. Now, how they've been smashed... I don't know. There's no, you know, suggestion as to how that was done. Um, but it does indicate that there is something that was there at one mm. point and they seem to be losing their strength. May as well have one come down and run for US president. Yeah. <laughs> like, could just, do to, worse. just to spice it up a bit. So then... Of blog, course. blog 24. <laughs> <laughs> he gets, gets on stage. Well, don't... He's, like, <laughs> blog, blog. <laughs> oh, he's got my vote. Still make there more sense than Kanye. There you go. Um, look, the thing about it is, though, is that you can't... There's so many of these stories out there. Like, there's so it starts then going into like uh, allegations that, and this kind of ties in with stories we've heard from people like uh, David Jacobs that they're already infiltrating Earth. So what you're describing, Ben, of them coming down to Earth, they already might be here. Mm. They may already be trying to be presidential candidates. Who knows? Yeah, they're already in their apartments trying to put their IKEA furniture together. <laughs> But going back to this repeating theme, though, of the Guardians, right, it all sounds negative, like it all sounds really dangerous, but apparently they're still Guardians. And uh, uh, Ross Derrickson describes this. Take a listen to what happened on Apollo 13. Shortly after I I retired from the Air Force, um, and I still was maintaining contact with friends and associates at the various places and on Colonel Parker and the Air Defense Command and the Space Command, particularly I would uh, run into him. He mentioned an incident which I later confirmed. A spacecraft went to the rescue of Apollo 13 and they accompanied Apollo 13 on their voyage around the moon and back to Earth. And on two occasions, they thought they might have to transfer the crew to their spacecraft, but they saw them safely back to the Earth. People were interested in the extraterrestrial technology, very much so. So they helped. They helped humanity. They helped the Apollo mission actually survive. And now I'm not entirely sure, you know, about the validity of these sorts of reports, but the fact that you've got now two reports connected to Apollo where there seems to be some type of extraterrestrial intervention that prevents disaster. These are the guardians of Apollo. These are the guardians of Apollo. That maybe it's not so negative. Maybe it's not so horrible. Uh, And one of the ideas is, is that, well, the reason why uh, the extraterrestrials or whatever they are, the inhabitants of the moon, they just wanted to be left alone. But during the Cold War, uh, essentially Project Horizon was created. And Project Horizon was, well, actually, I'll let Nick Redfern describe what Project Horizon was for you. It's kind of ironic that at the dawning of the 1960s, the US Army had a significant project in place called Project Horizon. And this was essentially a program to build a manned base on the surface of the moon. And the idea was that in the event that the Soviets launched a sneak attack on the United States, if in a worst case scenario, a lot of the US military bases got taken out, at least we could launch a counterattack with missiles situated on the surface of the moon. 
But the big irony is we chose not to build a base, but very possibly somebody else from somewhere else has done exactly that. And that's the idea, that there already was a base there. But going back to what Colonel Ross Derrickson was describing, how they were trying to transport a nuclear weapon to the moon, they weren't doing it for testing. They were probably trying to send nuclear, or they may have done it for testing, but to see if they could launch a nuclear weapon from the moon. And if this species is already ticked off with us, because if we affect the ionosphere or affect the electromagnetic properties of the Earth, imagine what would happen if we set off a nuclear weapon on the moon and how it would damage their structure or their electromagnetic features that allow them to move around. So essentially what we could have done is by one nuclear bomb, we could have upset their entire transport network. Can we do it? <laughs> no, I don't I don't think we can fire a nuclear weapon at the moon. I don't Why well not? because according to this, the extraterrestrials will just disable it. What if we fire like a hundred of them at the moon? Well who knows what kind of capabilities <laughs> they have. They might be able to destroy it. So I don't know. Look, there's these stories, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's the moon's galactic history, a look at the moon's extraterrestrial past and its connections to Earth. It's actually quite a big book. There's a, a wide collection of you know a long history of these interactions with strange happenings on the moon that suggest that we are not alone. But for whatever reason, we're not meant to know yet exactly what is going on. Good uh, stuff. Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's a, it's a bit strange. I want to go into this in greater detail, actually, because I was going through today finding out stories of uh, connections to, like, the royal family and how the royal family were... Prince Philip apparently was obsessed with UFOs. And because Prince Philip was obsessed with UFOs, he got in contact with other people and then the aliens started noticing Prince Philip. So I might do that on the Plus show or I might do a little bit later on because i got to dig into a little bit deeper, but it was almost like extraterrestrials connected to the moon apparently got ticked off with what the royal family was doing mm. and tried to intervene. So we'll find out Did more... Did the aliens ever go to Epstein's Island? <laughs> That's the question. Maybe that's exactly what happened. Maybe that's what it's all about. We've got more coming up on this show. I'm going to be going into Creating Places of Power by Nigel Pennick. We're going to go into the uh, geomancy history of Europe, why it's important to bury an egg under your doorstep Oh, okay. <laughs> to protect you from lightning. Lightning? <laughs> yeah, that's what the Germans believe. You put, oh. a, put an egg in under your house and it protects your house from lightning. Okay, interesting. Uh, we're going to go into builders' rights and the hermetic tradition, a bunch of wild, crazy stuff. And, of course, burying a dead horse <laughs> under your driveway. There has right. to be an easier way, Ben. There has to be. <laughs> Uh, if you want to get access to that, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. Sign up today and you'll get access to the big extensions we do every single Friday. And plus members get an exclusive show every single Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content when you sign up for plus. Plus members who sign up for MU Max get our entire back catalog as well. And it's funny because people have been asking me on Twitter what my favorite show is. And I just feel like asking, are you on Max? Just... <laughs> don't, don't listen to all of it don't waste my time unless you're on Emmy Max because I'm going to suggest something from a couple of years ago and you won't be able to listen to it you got to be on Emmy Max so, so messages uh, yeah that's one of the top ones uh, sign up today and also plus members of course uh, regardless of what tier you're on you get a higher bitrate feed of the show so better quality audio and a totally ad free version of the show as well sign up today mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus that's a wrap for this free edition of the show thanks for listening if you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Oh,